Hey, hey, this is Chase Masterson, host of Disco Nights, inviting you to join us every Sunday as the disco party continues with our fabulous guests. Like us. Like you. And you, our audience. So we'll see you here next Sunday night. Bring your disco shoes. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, co-host of Inglorious Trexperts. And if you're a fan of Battlestar Galactica, and who isn't, check out my new oral history of Battlestar Galactica with Ed Gross, So Say We All. It spans the complete history of Battlestar Galactica from the 1978 series to Ronald Moore's brilliant reinvention and even Galactica 1980. Available from Tor Books wherever books are sold. If you like movies as much as we like movies, then you'll want to listen to the 430 Movie Podcast at 430movie.com and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. Well, here we are yet again celebrating the 40-year legacy of Star Trek The Motion Picture this year. And I'm really excited because today we're looking at an oft-overlooked chapter in that saga. Um, several we, chapters. Several, several chapters, <laughs> in fact. You know, people uh, don't realize, you know, people always talk about, you know, Star Wars was greeted by this litany of... Uh, uh, memorabilia and merchandise, but they forget that uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture had not only the novel, which we talked about previously, but The Making of Star Trek by Susan Sackett, Star Trek Speaks, the who can forget the peel-off graphics book? By Lee Cole. Uh, <laughs> by Lee Cole, that's right. Uh, the Space Flight Chronology, a uh, new set of blueprints, uh, The Monsters of Star Trek, the Marvel Comics adaptation, my favorite, The Photo Story, you know, which was the offshoot of the photo novels. Well, and uh, my favorite... Oh, I know where you're going with this. ...was... Chekhov's Enterprise. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I, you know. I mean, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, good choice. I'm about to feed it to, to you because what I wanted to, you know, say the reason, what's so great, film journalism in the 30s and 40s and 50s, even into the 60s, was all driven by publicists, much like it is now. Right. Nothing was true. It was all putting the actors in the best light. Um, you know, Rock Hudson loves women, you know, right. but uh, <laughs> stuff like that. What you start to have after Pauline Kael and some of these great film critics is is this renaissance in, in like with Andrew Saris and stuff, film of film criticism and behind the scenes. Uh, I have a book in front of me which you you can't see on the podcast, but it's Roger Moore's James Bond Diary. Now this this book is 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 crazy. Um, it was uh, uh, literally it was written by Roger Moore. Uh, it was his experience making Live and Let Die, and it's extremely candid. But there is perhaps no better book. Which was contemporaneous with when a film was being made, then Chekhov's Enterprise, written by Walter Koenig, uh, at the it is such a great insight into the making of Star Trek the Motion Picture, and we're lucky enough to have the writer of that tome. I don't know if it qualifies as a tome because it's not as thick as a tome, but this great book, a uh, paperback. Um, he uh, he's also the author of his autobiography, Warped Factors, A Neurotic's Guide to the Universe, which uh, he will be updating and revising and will be reissued later this year, which I can't wait to read. Um, a lot of people you know, know him as an actor, um, but they don't realize that in addition, we've talked about The Infinite Vulcan on our animated Star Trek episode, which is a terrific episode, but also wrote episodes of Family, Powers of Matthew Starr for Hart Bennett, Land of the Lost, comic books, novels, and um, just really one of the great uh, pieces of Trek journalism, Chekhov's Enterprise. So, welcome to Walter Koenig. 
Well, thank you very much. I'm I'm glad to be Walter Koenig, and I'm glad to be, <laughs> and I'm glad to be here. You, uh, you know, it's interesting because your good friend, who 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 sadly passed away earlier this year, Harlan Ellison, wrote the introduction uh, to the book. Can you tell me a little bit about? You know, sort of getting Harlan to do that was how, how much uh, did you need to twist his arm and 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 uh, a little bit about that many decade friendship that you both had. Well, it was it was really it was it was the the the, the fiercest ride at uh, either Disneyland or uh, what's the one up north? The, the Magic uh, Mountain. Yes, yeah, because it was an up and down relationship, mm. and it, it was always that. And there were years when we didn't talk. Uh, I'd scream at him and hang up the phone, and and then he would call me back and aggrieved and uh, apologetic, and it just went on and on and on. Um, but you know, I I was in touch with him uh, before he passed away. In fact, we hung out together. I I laid down on his bed and uh, we we talked about the five marriages as he had, he had had. Mm. So. <laughs> So that was my last. Uh, how did I get him to do it? I don't know. I think he, we were in good on good terms then. We were on very good terms, and it, I didn't have to convince him. I uh, he just said, "Yeah, okay." Yeah, it's 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 a wonderful introduction to the book, and says some some great things about. Uh, you know, I'm sure it's hard for you being the neurotic curmudgeon that you are to accept all that praise that you were receiving, especially from the man who cornered the market on neurotic and curmudgeonly, uh, you know, Harlan Ellison. But he's so complimentary. And uh, I, I again, I just find this this book delightful. And it's so funny to watch, even in the book, as you keep talking about the budget going up. You, you refer to it for half the book as the $15 million production of Star Trek The Motion Picture. But by the time you get to the end of the book, I think it was up to, uh, you know, it was up to 24 by right. then. You know, ultimately, as we all know, it was forty three. But yeah, yeah. um, forty three. Yeah. It, 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 it's amazing how candid you were um, in, in in sort of you, you know your and and also a very self deprecating, which is your stock and trade. Um, but uh, you know, talk. But I love when you describe what it was like to to step onto that set for the first time. I mean, here it had been ten years since you filmed the last episode of the original series, and. Um, you, you describe it as all of us are here, and yet where is that sense of camaraderie, that feeling of being swept away, euphoria? It would seem to be in short supply. I don't know. Maybe it's just the new uniforms. Maybe it's just because we have been assembled on a barren soundstage and not on the bridge yet. But uh, I sense from everyone it's not the same as it was. This may be Star Trek, but it isn't the old Star Trek. The jury may still side in favor of Thomas Wolfe. Which, I mean, I just I love the writing there, and it's it bookends the, the, the book so well because at the end... You really are very melancholy as you're leaving the set, uh, having had this incredible experience, as unhappy as you might have been with, you wish you had more close-ups, you wish you had more to do, mm. uh, but yet, when you walk away, there's a, a real sense of melancholy that this ex- incredible experience is over, and then, of course, you, 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 as the Brits would say, take the piss out of it, say, but of course, then there'll be the sequel. So, um, can you describe for us what that was like for you? Because at the time... It was not typical that a TV shows, particularly a failed TV show, you know, by all metrics, um, would come back as a, a huge budget motion picture. And you're standing there at Paramount, uh, you know, it must have been a remarkable experience. Well, it was remarkable if for no other reason than uh, we had several false starts mm. in, in um, bringing Star Trek back to life. 
uh, I think, I don't know if I, uh, frankly, I, I don't recall uh, what I wrote entirely, but um, we we had a, uh, there was a proposal that, to, for a new Star Trek television series in 1975. And, uh, and then again, a, a year or two later, it was brought up, and then nothing happened. And, and then it was going to be a, a, a B picture, uh, low budget. Then it was going to. Then the thinking was, no, we'll, we'll do it as a television series. And um, and then uh, I remember going in for a costume fitting and being complimented on how I would still fit the costume, whereas some of the other <laughs> actors wouldn't. And I was feeling very smug about that. And I got home. The phone rang, and I picked it up. Oh, we're being uh, at least postponed. You know, maybe canceled. I mean, from the time I. Had the the fitting the time I got home, the whole map had been changed. So um, when we actually got on that sound, and, and I'm by nature pretty cynical, and um, I'm as I'm sure I said somewhere, I, I see the glasses half filled and uh, with a with a with a hole in the bottom. You know, it's going to leak out anyway. So um, with all of the um, postponements and uh, the ups and the downs, I really, I really didn't – I really wasn't available to embrace this idea entirely. Right. I, uh, so we got, when, we, when we got on the set and uh, that, the first shot, I still wasn't convinced we were making a movie. <laughs> I really – first it was, it was, a, was, a, was, was a, a master – that pan the bridge, and we were just caught at our stations. <clears throat> and it wasn't until the second shot was set up, we we were setting it up, and it's where Sulu, Uhura, and Chekhov uh, go over to the um, lift, and uh, and Captain Kirk steps out. And when we were standing there, ready lighting that shot, I said, "My God." We are making this movie. Yeah. I mean, that was when I believed, I truly believed we were making a movie. So it was quite amazing. It was amazing because this was fairly unprecedented to go from the television series. I'm sure there are a few examples, but not, not quite like this. And then after all of the disappointments and after all of the uh, uh, failed efforts, uh, it just seemed all the more remarkable. So... I had uh, I had a good time on on the film. I had one humiliating moment, absolutely <laughs> humiliating, and uh, it didn't involve Bill Shatner. <laughs> <laughs> it involved Mr. Wise, and it was totally my fault. And I and I know I uh, I mentioned it, but you know it's one of these mea culpa things where every once in a while I have to confess again to my bad behavior. Um, it's that old Jew in me that you know. It, I have to, uh, I have to express my guilt. Uh, I had asked him at the, at at at, what, at 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 some juncture whether they were going to come up, uh, whether come in on a close up on me, because you know, during the television series, um, we 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 had you know we were definitely second class citizens, the, the supporting actors, and I was hoping that. Um, this motion picture would give us uh, a, a, a greater opportunity to shine a little bit. And um, so I asked him if uh, they were to come in in a close-up, and he turned to me and quietly said something, something to the uh, 
something uh, uh, like this. He said, um, don't don't ask me those actorish comments, Walter. (laughs) And uh, this is the guy who had worked with Orson Welles, you know, and and I really, really felt horrible. I felt, oh, boy, you know, what what must he think of me? And... um, and how shallow I did, in fact, sound to him. To me, it was I'm just, you know, struggling to stay uh, stay afloat, uh, because, uh, because I knew how things had been compromised throughout the series, where we'd come in, be ready to shoot a scene, and then discover that although the the, the lines hadn't been changed, the blocking had, and um, whereas we were, you know, we, we, we were doing group shots. Suddenly, they were singles, mm-hmm. you know, with voiceovers in the background. Right. So uh, I, I just felt awful. I just felt awful. But then, bless his heart, bless his heart, I don't know exactly when it was, whether it was the next day or near the end of the shoot, but he's, uh, Mr. Wise said out loud, oh, and after you get the group shot, I want to come in close on Walter. Mm. And that was like he recognized the pain he had inadvertently inflicted and how embarrassed and... Uh, but I love the way you describe it in the book because, you know, everyone's always described him as classy and elegant and, you know, all this is true. I've never heard a bad word about Rob Weiss, Bob Weiss. But he's talking to the AD, but he kind of raises his voice and said, and then after that, let's go in close on Walter. So you could hear it yes. without specifically saying we're doing a close-up. Right. Yeah. It was sort of his mea culpa. Well, maybe maybe he felt that way. I, you know, uh, I certainly did. Uh, no, I certainly felt it was mine. But yeah, I think I think he probably. I'm 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 quite sure that he 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 was saying it for my for my benefit. I love the way you describe Bob Wise. You know, it's interesting because we always say it's very hard for the Star Trek actors to understand this passion that this this love that the fans really have for them. I mean, you know, we we experience that with. You know, doing obviously Free Enterprise with Bill Shatner. You know, the time that we were fortunate enough to spend together in, in, in Spain at the Sigis Film Festival. You know, actor can't really understand you know this experience. And to read you talking about your love for Bob Wise, you know, having grown up, and you describe it as you know, you know, I see this is at the very beginning or the shoot. I see Robert Wise, the director of our movie, again as always. He is subdued. I can't tell whether he's tired, unhappy, or just preoccupied. He is not an aloof man, but just what kind of man is he? I do not know yet. Maybe it's the huge film success he has had, but I certainly do not feel comfortable in his presence. On the other hand, I don't feel too comfortable in the presence of the guy who brings the morning coffee either. And, and, but then later you talk about. I mean, I love this book. But then you go back, uh, you know, later on, and you talk about sort of you're doing a rehearsal. And he sort of like lets the veil down a little. He starts talking about Orson Welles, and you're like a kid in a candy store, like listening to his Orson Welles stories. And and you say, when the man was fully concentrated, and and this is what Bob Wise said of Orson Welles during the rehearsal, when the man was fully concentrated on one project as he was with Kane, he came off as close to genius as the history of film has ever known. And it was like, you know, you get the sense of you as somebody who loves movies, who who loves, you know, wow, I'm I'm like here with the connection with yeah. Bob Wise, who yeah. did, you know, these incredible films. Absolutely. Um, so. I want to I, I want to mention something about this, because obviously, as we know now, Mr. Wise was under immense pressure on this because on day one, the movie was already 
15 million dollars over budget right because they had folded in all the costs of these false starts and all the development time into the budget of the movie well, I, you know what i didn't know that yeah yeah uh so day 1 they were behind <laughs> and over budget and so i'm wondering how much of that pressure actually made it to the actors did, how did he you know maintain the you know, the all's well uh, on set, or did a little of that nervousness come through, or could you sense it at all? No, it didn't. And certainly not for me. I, I was just so pleased to be there uh, and, and and being a working actor again mm-hmm. and doing something that I thought was quite phenomenal, quite extraordinary, to, to reprise the whole Star Trek uh um, you know, um, event in my life. Um, so I know I didn't. In fact, as a matter of fact, you know, my uh, the contract of the supporting actors. I don't know what the the three leads their their deal was, but we were on a uh, five week sh- shoot, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, but with no. Uh, no, no um, provisos regarding overtime. Right. In other words, if they went on overtime, we were to be paid for that. Right. Uh, which they corrected <laughs> in, in all the other movies we did, uh, and which led to you know it led to a, a, a threat of, of suing a couple of the actors who wanted to change their contract. And uh, yeah, there were things going on behind the scenes that were interesting. But we're here to talk about. The motion picture, so uh, no, I not and that's why I was able to write so much. You know, I wrote on the set. Uh, well, in in my dressing room, I I wrote a lot uh, because we had so much time. Mm-hmm. We'd come in in the morning, and um, we would uh, they'd say, "Okay, yeah, get into costume or get into makeup," and then uh, we were extending the coffee. Break or something, right. and we would for two hours, sure, we or, or or more. Sometimes we didn't get get on the soundstage until uh, after lunch, and um, and and Bill and Leonard had in their contract the stipulation that if the if the, if the movie if the shoot went longer than a designated number of weeks, then they would have input right. into the story. Which you know can only be a disaster <laughs> because they're looking they're looking out for themselves and and and, um, and they're looking to you know to imp- improve their roles any way they can. So we were we were running in place for sure. weeks and weeks and weeks, and there were like six or seven people, John uh, um, John Povel and Livingston and. Uh, and Gene and uh, and um, and Bill and Leonard at, at all uh, pitching ideas and running around and nobody being able to um, push the, the project any further. Right. And the and the reason was is we started this movie without an ending. Yeah. Right. Uh, you didn't have an ending to this movie. I mean, that's like painting yourself into a corner. And because what if, they had already pre-sold it. The they pre-sold it, and they had to it. open by, on a certain date. Correct. The movie theaters had a deal to yeah. open on a certain date. So it was quite bizarre. And I think I mentioned, and I don't, and I don't for the life of me remember what it was that D said. But we were sitting there talking. D was not 
one of those who was in conference mm-hmm. uh, on the on the story. But he gave he he told me an idea that he had, and it was a great idea. Mm-hmm. And I said, D, tell them, tell them about this. This would work. This would work. And he says, No, I I can't I can't do that. I can't do that. So, mm. I as I say, it it really was logical, uh, and and it was uh, and it was really. Uh, uh, very, uh, very satisfying. What we ended up with was a picture where you sit there slack-jawed uh, looking at the special effects in awe of, but where is the climax of the movie? You know, where is, where is that extraordinary uh, um, moment when everything comes together uh, and you overcome the, the great conflict and you have a satisfying finale? We, we didn't have it. Well, you know, it's funny because I think what you described and what you capture in the book so well is sort of people think, oh, we're making a movie. It's exciting. It's like we're putting on a show. But you capture the monotony of being on set, you know, as the days become weeks and the weeks become months. And, right. You know, you deal with mundane things like getting a haircut and, you know, and, 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 and dealing with the fear of getting a haircut and having to deal with that. And, you know, what are they going to think of my hair, you know, when I... Well, yeah, well, I was losing it. I was, was losing it, my hair back in the series days. And Fred Phillips, our, our hair, our, our makeup man, uh, when I when I uh, after I was immediately after I was cast, uh, he took me. Oh, it was before I was uh, before I was cast. Oh, I guess I wasn't quite cast. <laughs> <laughs> and but he came in. They called him in. He took me to Max Factor, and we tried out a half a dozen wigs, mm-hmm. women's wigs, brought them back, and tried them all on. Uh, and then all through this, even when my hair, and, then, and at that point my hair was short because I had uh, been making my own film. And uh, so even after my hair grew out, uh, or when, yeah, it was, it was evident that it was starting to thin. So he would spray it and, uh, and, and comb it forward. And that's how I went through, um, that's how I went through the first six episodes of the series, and that's how I went. Uh, and then, by the time we made the motion picture, I was I was wearing a hairpiece, my own hairpiece mm. that I had had um, made uh, all the time. Yeah, no, it's 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 so interesting, and you know, you'll talk about getting sides. Uh, you know, and everything was so top secret. You get, you know, do not duplicate. You know, a secret, top secret, and it would be like how to operate. Your console. It's like, where are my lines? You know, it's like they're sending me the instructions to, you know, how to use the weapons console or something. It is, Which as is though... not functional. <laughs> I mean, none of those. But you couldn't press any of those buttons. You know, I mean, they didn't go anywhere. They were just little plastic cubes. <laughs> you know, the other thing where I think you sort of demythologize things in a really accurate and interesting way is you know, there's this whole sense of the Star Trek family. You know, like, oh, you guys are all, like, hang out and do everything together and they're just, like, this tight group of friends. <laughs> and, and I'm not saying that, that, that they're people you dislike, but just that you didn't know them, you didn't work with them. I mean, you talk about James Doohan didn't even show up until, like, 15 weeks and maybe you had three scenes with him in the original show. And, you know, like, we never... You never think about it that way. And then... You know, how, George Takei, you mean? Uh, 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 I think you talked about doing this, uh, Scotty. How how few scenes you had with him, and he doesn't come till oh, very late in the production because he's in the engine. Because he's in engineering, right. and he's right. very rarely on the bridge. Right, and it's like, 
you know, he came to visit the set, but it was like there, you know, for the first month or two, like he wasn't even there and you had barely worked with him on the TV series. And you talk about sitting next to Leonard one day and it was like you said it was the first chance to actually have a conversation with Leonard Nimoy and, and to, to, to get to know him here uh, on the soundstage. Leonard sits down in a nearby chair. It occurs to me while we were talking that I have never spoken to him at sufficient length to determine whether... Uh, the somewhat taciturn and sober presentation he makes in nine parts is Spock is nine parts Spock or nine parts Nimoy. I am only sure that the um, character he plays is a wonder to behold. I find myself as Chekhov being comforted by his presence. It is a mark of uh, Leonard's command of his portrayal that when I step onto the set and assume the Vulcan identity, I have immediate well-defined feelings about the Vulcan across from me. I know Leonard has written a book with the title that apparently defines his feelings on the matter, but I also know that when we perform the roles truthfully, we draw upon ourselves for the source material. And you go on to talk about how you really didn't know much about Leonard, but that you began to really respect um, the fact that he would show up you know, after a day of work at uh, um, Harold Livingston's house, uh, he'd work all night on script pages, you know, getting literally no sleep and show up on set the next morning, um, having, you know, worked to try and make the movie better. And uh, specifically that last scene where if Dr. McCoy is is is, is going to remain with you, I, I, I better stay on the ship, you know. Um, Really, really interesting. Uh, you know, and I, I don't think people, you know, realize that because the way movies are scheduled and that you don't necessarily spend a huge amount of time, uh, even with this ensemble. Yeah, well, Leonard was a, a very specific situation, uh, different than I'd say ninety-five percent of actors. I mean, he was Spock all the time, and and, and I didn't. I, 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 you know, the more films we did, the greater perspective I had on how we functioned, and I realized. Uh, I mean, it's it's prescient that I uh, that I mentioned it there, but I, I, you know, when we did Star Trek Six, I I realized that I n- knew almost as little about who he was as I did when I started on the series. He he, he was. The uh, he was the uh, you know our our contribution to, to to method acting. I mean, he was always Spock. Uh, um, frequently during makeup, but certainly once makeup was on, you know, you you could only I felt I could only approach him as Mister Spock, mm-hmm. um, and that's why I've said on any number of occasions. Although you know, I, I think it's it's wonderful that we were we have been you know so. Heralded it and uh, and had such a supportive and dedicated fan base, uh, who uh, and, and all this adulation and uh, uh, favor that the, uh, the the Star Trek fans have bestowed on us. There's a thousand actors for every part, a thousand good actors in Hollywood for every part on that show, and they would have been at, at least as successful. As we were, and uh, they may have they may have done it differently, but they would have been at least as successful. But nobody, nobody could be Spock. Spock, did we just see the beginning of a new life form? Yes, Captain. We witnessed a birth, possibly a next step in our evolution. I wonder. Well, it's been a long time since I delivered a baby. I hope we got this one off to a good start. I hope so, too. 
I think we gave it the ability to create its own sense of purpose. Out of our own human weaknesses. And the drive that compels us to overcome them. And a lot of foolish human emotions, right, Mr. Spock? Quite true, Doctor. Unfortunately, it will have to deal with them as well. Interrogative from Starfleet. They're requesting damage and injury reports and complete vessel status. Report two casualties. Lieutenant Ilea. Captain Decker. Aye, sir. Correction. They're not casualties. They are... List them as missing. Vessel status fully operational. Aye, sir. Mr. Scott, shall we give the Enterprise a proper shakedown? I would say it's time for that, sir. Aye. We can have you back on Vulcan in four days, Mr. Spock. Unnecessary, Mr. Scott. My task on Vulcan is completed. Mr. Sulu, ahead warp one. Warp one, sir. Heading, sir. People could pretend to be Spock, but they only Leonard could be Spock. Um, because he was. One, this is beside this point, but I got to tell you this story. This is one of my most infu- most infuriated moments that I ever had on Star Trek. We were, um, was some time, sometime during uh, the movie days, we were supposed to do a, a convention in Houston. It was supposed to be a huge convention. Mm. Oh, wasn't that the ultimate fantasy? And yes. yes. Yeah, 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 uh-huh. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and Leonard must have known something that the rest of us didn't. But, and I, was, I had been asked to be the middleman with the, with the other actors, not to negotiate contracts, but to field them out. And so I talked to everybody, and everybody was uh, up with it, and they all wanted to do it. And Harv Bennett was, um, was going to be in it as well. And I spoke to Leonard, and this was about four months before before the convention and he said ask me again you know when we're closer to it mm. and I said okay okay and, and then one day I didn't we were getting very close we were getting about two three weeks away and I didn't ask him but he asked me he said what's happening with the convention and I said oh we're going to do it we're going to do it so uh, are you interested and my hand to God and I don't believe in God, so I'm not, it's not, I guess it's not very, um, it's not very um, significant that I say that. But he said to me, nothing. He raised an eyebrow. He raised an eyebrow and looked at me. Oh, my God. And that was it. I wanted to kill him. I wanted to absolutely kill him. I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe that he was still Spock. And when he, he had approached me on this occasion, he had, you know, I, I had not had an opportunity to go up and ask him if he wanted to come. He approached me and then gave me the Spock look. But from what I've heard, you know, it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't for me alone. 
I mean, <laughs> the, the, his family uh, had to deal with that as well. You know, uh, you know, beyond, beyond Paramount Studios. I have a, a question. You haven't introduced me yet, by the way. Oh my to, God, I'm so sorry. I just sorry. want to point that Ro- out, Rob. I, I apologize. <laughs> and of course, Rob Burnett is here again, uh, a, a guest, uh, director, uh, Free Enterprise. Um, he also uh, did the uh, wonderful uh, special features on the Star Trek: The Next Generation uh, and and Enterprise uh, Blu-rays, uh, and uh, is uh, uh, also a host on his own uh, Observations on YouTube. Sorry, I, but Rob. he has a question. <laughs> I just didn't want to start. start Since your son, I didn't want to start space. talking without people going. Who is that guy? Well, Walter, I wanted to ask you that this Chekhov's Enterprise, when the book came out, what I thought was so astonishing about your book, even to this day, is it was the first time I had read you brought up I Am Not Spock. Leonard Nimoy had written that book, but he wasn't really talking about the day-to-day life of Star Trek and what it was like. You were the first cast member that we ever heard from, and to this day, it's probably the most significant insight into what it was like to make Star Trek first-hand account. It's one of the great, I think, uh, if you are interested in the Star Trek franchise, your book is one of the one of the places, one of the ground zero to go to to find out the experience uh, of what making Star Trek was like. Hmm. And oh, my, my, I always wondered, even when I, I read the book, I bought the book the day it came out, just so you know, I had to go to the bookstore. And, and when I read it, it was so... Dollar 95. I, I probably read pocketbooks. I probably read this book 10 times. And I'm curious, did your fellow actors know that you were writing it? And did you ever go back and and discuss with them their recollections at all? Or and then then how did you uh, approach Pocket? Did they come to you or how did you get the the book published? And what was the what was the reaction? Did your fellow actors talk to you? Did you ever hear reaction from anybody after the book had come out that had surprised you? Well, the reason <laughs> I sense a story here. I know you know. I'm now 82, and you know, curmudgeon, uh, whatever, uh, appli- whatever applies. Um, uh, I don't want to sound bitter. <laughs> I don't want to sound bitter. I've written several books. No one has ever re- re- replied except Leonard. When Leonard found out that I'd written my autobiography, he asked to read it, and he called me and said it was the best autobiography that any anyone on this show has done. Mm-hmm. So that was very nice. But um, no, I didn't tell anybody I was writing it. Uh, I, I I just I, I I didn't I didn't want that to become an element in the story where people are cautious about talking mm-hmm. to me. And on the, at the same time, you know, I I I didn't reveal any. Anything? No, you know, and it's really no. from your perspective, which yeah. is what makes it so yeah, unique. Yeah, yeah. I, I had no desire to do a tell-all kind of thing, or no, but yeah. it wasn't like that. Which is so. That's why yeah. I loved reading it. It yeah. was such an honest account without being mean-spirited. Well, you know what? The other difference is too. It's the only of the books that's not ghost-written. You know, Walter's books are actually written by Walter, so they feel very honest and right. real. And whereas... your personality comes yeah, through that, on every that, page. Yes. Well, George wrote his autobiography. Okay. Yeah. Right. Um, so there's that. But yeah, uh, so anyway, uh, what was the rest of the question? <laughs> well, uh, how well, did just, you end up making the deal with Pocket? Yeah, how did you, you make asking? the deal yeah, with Pocket well, and, and how did uh, they approach it? I, I, I wrote it first, and then I, you know, I'd go home and then I would type it up. So I was writing in longhand on, you know, in my, in my uh, dressing room. And I got it to, to 
pocketbook. I don't recall. I, I maybe a literary agent uh, set me, put me onto them. But I know that the woman who re- who read it loved it. She absolutely loved it. It worked for pocketbook, and she immediately, you know, wanted to make a deal. And we did. And I, you know, I don't know if it was a good deal or a bad deal. I just liked the idea of being published, you know. Well, it's so funny you said, we've told the story before, but at the time, you know, Harold Livingston, the, the writer, was fighting like cats and dogs with Gene Roddenberry, and the studio was sort of backing Harold a little more than Gene. So then Gene comes in one day with this shitty sh- grin on his face to Harold and says, oh, I just sold the rights to the novelization of Star Trek The Motion Picture for $400,000. And this is 1979 to Livingston. And to this day, he's still pissed off about that. Um, well, the thing that, that upset me was that um, uh, Susan Sackett had done a... Making up, Which right. is mostly, you know, reprinting press releases mm-hmm. and... It was not terribly insightful, but she was closer to Jean than I was. <laughs> Considerably. <laughs> Considerably, yes, in all ways possible. But, so um, she told them that they could not print my book at the same time as they printed uh, hers. Right. So my book, which would have been a great stocking stuffer, I thought, you know, for Christmas— uh, was ready to be released then, was actually postponed ent- until the spring. Mm. The I, I think the fact that you started writing it before you thought of it as a book makes it all the better because the the purity of the entries yeah. and the and the writing really comes out that you weren't doing this just to get a paycheck. You were doing this because you you wanted to mark this down. You wanted to you know to capture this. Moment, these well, moments. Well, let, let, uh, let me correct you a little bit. I wanted it to be published, mm. I, but I, I, you know, I've had a problem with uh, with doing things, uh, e- e- equating uh, uh, anything with how much money I'm getting for it. Sure, it's not. It's never been that big an issue. I had a couple of really bad years after the series was canceled, sure. uh, and I was held to live with because we were really broke. But uh, other than that, I've, I've never. That's that's been a consideration, after all. You know, uh, I, I should be uh, compensated for for what I do, but it's never been the, the principal issue. Right. And um, so uh, I wasn't thinking about uh, dollar bills when I was writing it. I was thinking about. This is kind of an unprecedented situation um, where we go from a television series to a movie, and I thought that should be documented. And that absolutely comes through. Pardon? And that absolutely comes through. Yeah. Yeah. Well, especially with how much mythologizing of these stories, over, you know, particularly with the conventions where people aren't telling the story of what really happened. They're telling the story of the story they told at the last convention. And um, so the truth has sort of gotten lost to the sands of time. And, you know, particularly in the cast... Uh, there's been a lot of diminishing of the importance of Star Trek The Motion Picture. So it's so wonderful to have this sort of primary 
document of the time that's written with such wit and and and, and insight. I mean, but even like here here. I mean, I love this. You you talk about talking to Leonard and how he just had all the success with his one man show of Van Gogh, or as Diane Keaton in Manhattan might say, Van Gogh. But um, you say it sets my imagination racing. Maybe I should put something together on the life of Anton Chekhov or Fyodor Dostoevsky. I mean, it's just. I, I mean, it's just like even the asides are just so delightful. And I mean, you know, and sort of, uh, you know, uh, things that go against conventional wisdom, you know, you talk about how much you like the new costumes. You're like, you know, there's considerable grumbling from the actors about how the costumes fit and feel. I suspect it has more to do with their new... uh, it has more to do with their newness, the fact that they are different from what we had worn during the series, than the quality of the comfort. You also talk about how the fact that what you said at the beginning of the podcast, most of their body types had changed dramatically <laughs> as opposed to in your case. And and you really embraced the costumes, which have, you know, sort of taken slings and arrows uh, over, uh, you know, over, over. And I, I guess you said, you know, your wife, Judy, you know, sort of weighed in and, 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 and liked them as well. So as, fine, as far as I'm concerned, that's the final word you said. Well, she, she was a, an art major, a costume art major at UCLA. So, yeah, I, I, I respected her opinion particularly above all others. On the other hand, and this is a digression, if you don't mind. No, please. Um, when we did Star Trek Three, uh, <laughs> the, the designer had decided that he was inspired with the idea of dressing me as a young Pushkin, the poet, the Russian poet. <laughs> so he put me in a Buster Brown collar oh, and, a, yeah. and a pink blouse, you know, and I, I hated it. Uh, Rightfully so. Yeah, right. <laughs> very justifiable. But the interesting moment is that, uh, and but I didn't say anything. Why didn't I say anything? Because I still had this, and I and, and I and I uh, admit, uh, ashamedly admit that I, I maintained this throughout my entire life with Star Trek until after the the uh, the final film was made. Um, I felt, you know, we were conditioned to being subordinate, being secondary players. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that's when we were shooting the series. That was the norm. You know, they were, you had the stars and the subordinate players, and the stars were were given credits at the beginning of the show, and the subordinate, the the secondary characters received theirs at the end of the show. So I was. I was conditioned to thinking in those terms, and consequently, I didn't think I had a voice mm. to, to to mention how how I felt about the costume. So Leonard came up to me like the second or third day of rushes after after they, they looked at the dailies and said, "We are um, we're going to change your costume. Paramount doesn't like it." I said, "Oh, thank God!" And he looked <laughs> at me and said, "Why didn't you say something?" Uh. And and he was really angry. And I thought, because I didn't think I could. I didn't think I would, I would carry any weight. Right. Uh, and evidently, it would have. It was my, it was my problem. I, I should have understood that. But I don't even know why I related that story no, now. No, but you well, know what? If you look at your history with Star Trek... You know, it's not just an actor's neuroses. You had a reason to feel that way. I mean, whether it was the original idea for the movie, which was going to be a prequel, where, you know, Chekhov wasn't going to be a part of it. Right. The animated series where no one told you you weren't in it, you know, until you found out at a convention. Uh, You know, so uh, there was this history where 
you know, you were, I, I don't know if disrespect is the right term, but weren't, you know, necessarily in the loop or weren't being prioritized as a character, that you would feel that way. Okay, thank you. <laughs> well, I was gonna, you know, that I would like to follow that question up. I, I felt that one of the great joys of the film series was beginning with Star Trek II, you had a story. Chekhov yeah. was on The Reliant with Captain Terrell, right. and you got to discover Khan first. You know, it was, and, and then in Star Trek Four, your great scenes with Nichelle and, and going uh, to Alameda and, and getting the, the nuclear equipment you needed to fix the, the dilithium crystals. So you were given a lot more to do as the film series sort of went on. And, and what was interesting to me, I thought that the Chekhov character, especially beginning with Star Trek Two, became this delightful addition. And to see you sort of come into your own was, was great to watch. Did you feel that? Did you feel that yourself that you were being given more to do and that you had more input? Well, on occasion, you know, certainly Star Trek Two. I well, I read the script and I loved the script. I said this is classical storytelling. Mm-hmm. You have not only do you have a a well defined protagonist, but you have a well defined antagonist. You had somebody who was not a cardboard character, but dimensional, who had a history who you could, even though you, you, you might despise him, you understood where he was coming from. He, you know, and, and, and it was a, and it was something you could identify with. You know, he'd lost the, his beloved, his, his wife. Um, and, and Ricardo, you know, was, was, was as, as bigger, as big as, big as the, as bigger as <laughs> I'm trying to find a, a very clever way of saying this and it ain't going to happen <laughs> um, he was as big as bigger than life as Captain Kirk was right so you had really two forces matched that were, forces yeah, yeah. The, you know the, un, the, the immovable object and the unstoppable force you know uh um, and that's what great conflict is is, make, is is bred from, and that's what makes good good storytelling. Sure. And when it's re- resolved in such a dynamic way as it was in, uh, resolved, that you know that's that's terrific. So yeah, and Star Trek Four, we even had a uh, we even had to check off. Theme music. I was going to say, you, Leonard I mean, Roseman wrote. I mean, what else can I ask for? <laughs> I mean, right. it's a delightful piece of music.
Clark Gable and Betty Davis, forget it. <laughs> Walter Gaining has his own theme music. Um, so yeah, so in those two pictures, I, 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 I really felt like I, I belonged. I, 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 was, I was a part of, I was making a contribution. Frequently, you know, I would go out uh, and be, when I went when on personal appearances, felt a little embarrassed that so much w- was being made of, um, of my contribution and, uh, you know, and, and by extension th- that of the other supporting actors. Uh, when, when we contributed, in my opinion, uh, a disproportionately small mm. amount to the, uh, t- to the overall product. Um, but when we made those two pictures, I felt very, very proud and, and, and felt, yeah, I have, uh, there is some measure uh, of success I can, I can accept uh, f- for this film because I, I, was, I was there doing something uh, defined and, yeah. and something. And integral. Yeah, and, and not integral, that, right. You get victimized in Star Trek II the way none of the principal cast really was ever hurt. I mean, you were really hurt. Like when you're watching that movie as a Star Trek fan, I'm like, why you got to do that to Chekhov? You know, when 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 Khan is torturing you. Yeah. And and there's I think one of the great pieces of acting in all of the film series is when uh, Khan reveals himself and you kind of say it under your breath. You say his name, this wonder, like, oh my god, I can't believe this is happening. And the way you say Khan. It sets the tone like this is some scary shit that's about to go down, oh, okay. and it's it's a great it's just a great moment when you okay. say that, and I can I just hear it echoing in my head right now as I'm mm. looking at you. I also want to say just off the cuff, just as a fan, Babylon Five has started streaming again. It's on. They just put it back on, right. and you are a scary dude, man. Bester is a scary, scary guy. The sky, the Psycorps is scary, and it's just as scary as it was when it first came on. So it's great to see Babylon Five again and to see your performance. I, I would, I would love to talk about all the other I aspects. Thought I would of say that. Walter's career, uh, be, and 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 if we're lucky enough, and 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 uh, he ever wants to talk to us again, you know, maybe we could <laughs> drag him back, kicking and screaming. But uh, you know, I want to, I want to sort of stay on Star Trek motion <laughs> yeah, picture. Sorry, I just had to uh, say it because, because it's new, you know. Look, even when we're That's talking. why he didn't introduce you with that. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Spock, can that be one of their crew? A probe from their vessel, Captain. Plasma energy combination. Don't interfere with it. Absolutely, I will not interfere. No one interfere. He doesn't seem interested in us. Only the ship. He knows. You, know, you, you have he one knows. of the great. You know, people have tried, and especially in the 50th anniversary, everyone's trying to explain the appeal of 
Star Trek and why do people you have the best explanation I've ever read of uh, why Star Trek still resonates you, you explain the enduring appeal of Star Trek as coitus interruptus as though three seasons the sex was uh, interrupted too soon and, and people just <laughs> want to get back in the bed and it's just such a, yeah. a, a funny uh, way of describing uh, that Star Trek wasn't able to go the distance to go to orgasm <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, it's sort of like having blue balls right <laughs> and you know of all the, the high highfalutin explanations of Star Trek's, so, you know, it gave us hope for the future and all. That's one of my there's favorite more truth in that than any of descriptions of, of, of it. Um, <laughs> and, and speaking of, 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 of sex, uh, one of the people that you muse on uh, with great admiration is uh, the delightful Persis Kambata. Um And uh, you describe her as, I talk, I talk at length uh, with Persis for the first time. She possesses a most interesting combination of seemingly contradictory personality traits. By turns, she is poised, elegant, international model, a guileless young girl who takes ingenious delight in her own beauty, and an actor like the rest of us fraught with self-doubt and insecurity. On the screen, the diverse elements come together in a delicate balance of sophistication and vulnerability. What a right! You should have written more, Walter. Yeah, and, yeah. And, that's, and, that's pretty good. But yeah. then <laughs> later on, you say Persis is concerned about her nude scene written into the script for her by Gene Roddenberry. Shockingly, that was my little yes. ad that you didn't put that in the book. She uh, she hasn't been able to get assurances from the front office that she will be wearing a body stocking. I'm concerned too. Chekhov is supposed to see her in this condition. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I just I, I adore this book. So um, you tell us a little bit about your memories of the late uh, Persis Kambata. You know, obviously she was being billed as the next big thing, but what people forget is she had actually been cast for the TV series. She would have been a series right. regular on um, on Phase Two, and then you know she she ends up uh, getting you know making it to the movies. Her and Stephen Collins. Um, what are your memories of of Persis? Uh, pretty much what you just read. Uh, she, you know, she had a, 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 she was a, a very, very pretty, very, very beautiful lady who had a, uh, had a sort of a uh, inge- ingenuous uh, self, uh, um, self, what, 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 uh, she, she, uh, she was, she was just, uh, very candid uh, in, 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 a, in a very in a very appealing way, you know. Oh, I am so pretty, <laughs> <laughs> right? You know, and She's you, pretty and, 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 and you Self. never and you never you know, you never you never uh, felt offended or you take uh, you know umbrage at that, that, that kind of uh, self description because it was obviously just what she felt, you know. Right. She uh, she she was just that person. She understood herself. Yeah. So yeah. So I mean, I I wasn't very very close to her, but I I thought that she was she was fun to be around, and I thought it was terribly tragic if she passed yeah, away at such an early age. Um, I got to work with uh, Robert Wise on the director's edition of the motion picture that we mm-hmm. did several years ago, and we talked with we talked with him about about Persis and um, his his one response that we uh, that we had from him when we were talking about her, uh, you know, uh, what was she like, um, you know, when she was cast and everything? He said, well, you know, she was cast before I came on, but, um, and then he and then he, he sat back and he sort of thought, ah, Persis. Hmm. She's dead, you know. And that was it. It was it as was if he, he had gone through an entire, uh, an entire uh, rev- uh, remembrance. In his mind. In his mind. 
And then, and then chose and not then, to share and it. And then chose not to share it at all. <laughs> well, speaking of, of sharing, you know, you talk a little bit, and this is obviously a licensed book, uh, you know, written in 1979. So there's only so much you could be candid about, but you talk a little bit about Shatner and Stephen Collins and sort of finding that dynamic and the young Collins, who many people were saying, oh, is this the new Captain Kirk? Uh, right. You know, um, you know and, and, and also, you know, just sort of, you know, Shatner reasserting the young the upstart alpha male. And the Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And he, I don't know if I put it in the book or not, but he said to me one day, we got along quite well, Steve and I. Well, he's uh, a Yankees fan. Yeah, yeah. And then we played ball together uh, when, when we were making the, the movie. You talk about that, the softball games. Right. Which is another, like, thing, you know, that's just sort of fun, uh, 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 fly It's a on fun the look that you never think about when you're watching the movie. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but he said to me one day, almost under his breath, you know, I asked him to let me out of this. Mm. I don't want to be in this movie. This was like a couple of weeks into shooting. I begged him to let me out of this because Shatner was giving him such a hard time. We never saw it. You know, we didn't see it. It was always behind the scene. Right. And of course, you know, he was no angel on T.J. Hooker. Uh, so, so there's a history. And, and, but we're not here to discuss that. That's, an, <laughs> that's another therapy session. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Bill has mellowed over the years. No, he hasn't. <laughs> no, he hasn't. Same. The delightful, uh, curious. <laughs> the same delightful person he's always been. Yeah, the curious person that he's always been. Uh, and I, and I, you know, uh, I, I feel, I, I feel really bad that Steve has run into such a um, 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 pothole, and that mm-hmm. things have uh, been so difficult for him. Because, you know, I can only talk from my relationship with him, and I thought he was a. A gentleman and a, and a really nice person, and uh, somebody I thoroughly enjoyed being around. Was he a good baseball player? He was a good well, baseball player. There you go. Yeah, and he liked the Yankees, so we, we had that in common. Because <laughs> this was you were making the movie in '78. It was like the Yankees back then. I mean, it was a dynasty. Yeah, you know, and, and it was the year after the Bronx is burning. You know, after they won the World Series and said Reggie Jackson and. Just uh, that was a great, great era to be a New Yorker. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> post blackout and and, uh, <laughs> and uh, God, New York was an interesting place in in that era. Uh, and the one thing they had going for it was the Yankees. Of course, I was a Mets fan, so it didn't oh, help. I'm oh. sorry if I had known that. <laughs> it would have never come a, on the point yeah, direct no. This would be an empty chair right here. <laughs> you know, this this year these we're we're celebrating the 40th anniversary of the motion picture all year right. on on this podcast. How do you feel uh that Star Trek the motion picture has aged as a film and it really it came out really close to when Star Wars came out and now the landscape I like to say that we live in the post geek singularity because back then these things were new, big budget science fiction epics. And now the culture has changed where everybody, every kid grows up loving science fiction and whether it's Star Wars or Star Trek or the Marvel films now. Have you seen the culture change since Star Trek The Motion Picture came out? And and how do you feel about where we are as people? Like, are you are you... Star Trek had this optimistic vision of the future. Even Star Trek The Motion Picture is about the awe and wonder of the universe. Do you still feel that 
we humanity has a future? Is Are we going to get to that enlightened 23rd century that Gene Roddenberry had imagined and you so and your compatriots deftly brought to the screen? Are you are you hopeful about the history and future of the human well, race? based on current events, based on the, the, the current environment, I'm not hopeful, you know. But then this is, this we, we are repeating what has happened in the history of mankind before. Uh, I mean, we have our own... And, national disgraces you know we we committed genocide on an entire uh, uh race of human beings we we enslaved and an, you know uh, another group of people uh, we are we are not without we are not without our fallibility and not without our um our guilt and uh, it's this is very scary to me uh, uh I was just reading. I was just reading a book about uh, uh, Germany before the Second World War in, in the late twenties and thirties, and it was about uh, the Jews and and what, what what was happening to them and how they were being. You know, it was, didn't all happen at once. You know, first they were removed from administrative jobs, government jobs, uh, jobs of uh, of significance. Uh, in terms of running the country, then then they were being, becoming isolated, and uh, they were they had to function in a separate area from from the rest of the people, and and uh, and the, the fact that people were not reacting to it, n- not responding in, in in sufficient numbers to stop it from continuing, and I look at where we are today. And uh, although I'm, I'm encouraged by what's happened in the House of Representatives, I'm, I'm, I'm I, I still, I'm, it depresses the shit out of me that we are living in such a really a totalitarian environment, and uh, it's got to change. It's and 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 um, and what has happened curiously is when as we have expanded our audience as a consequence of the uh the uh the need to keep up with with the industry we have also uh i believe um changed to some degree the the uh the appeal of our show Whereas when we were doing Star Trek television, uh, we were we were do- obviously and everybody knows this. We were doing stories and relationships. Mm-hmm. We were not relying on special effects. Um, even even in st- Star Trek the motion picture, we had uh, failed um, special effects. We hired the, the wrong company and couldn't do it. But what's what's happened now is. The new films, as good as they are and as wonderfully done as they are, they have embraced a broader audience. And this audience is not as interested in the philosophy of Star Trek or the humanitarianism as they are in the in the they're confections in the pirate they're, they're, pyrotechnics. Yeah, yeah. But I got to ask you because you, you know what you're talking about. You know. Um, what really scares me, and I've talked about this on the show before, is you look at somebody like a Ted Cruz or a Stephen Miller, and they call themselves Star Trek fans. It's like, did they not get the memo? 
like what Star Trek is about, you know, about inclusivity, you know, uh, the progressive values of Star Trek, even when it stumbled in Private Little War. It, ultimately, Star Trek is a show about a family and it about an embrace of science and embrace of what's different and understanding. And uh, so when I, I hear these these conservatives who demonize immigrants and, and, and have this the, the, these these dark politics, uh, you know, it, it, it goes against everything that Star Trek's about. Right. No, Absolutely. Absolutely, and I and I th- and I think what was what made what 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 made for such an immediate uh, visceral and intellectual reaction by our television audience uh, was the fact that we had Japanese American an African American uh, a Russian a, an alien. And they saw those people every week. Mm-hmm. And they not only got along, they were loyal to each other. They loved each other. Yeah. And that, you know, with all the plotting and all the stories, you know, Let That Be Your Last, battle, last Battlefield and all the other stories that were focusing on topical events and, and you know, at a, at a different time in, in history, um, that was... That was the subliminal message that was being carried, right. and um, it's 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 not quite. I don't think it has quite the potency in the films because they are now so overwhelmed by right. the spectacular, and 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 that's what a lot of the audience is is drawn to. Now I I do conventions and I meet uh, lots of people, and the fact that they still invite me. Is testimony to the fact that we still have the old time fans, or people who have rediscovered or discovered Star Trek in reruns uh, in their thirties, forties, and fifties. Um, but I don't know what the hell I was saying. Uh, it's funny because I was, you know, telling them before you arrived. I think I've told you this. My nine year old son, his favorite character is Chekhov. So I mean, mm-hmm. you just never. There's always this new audience that's coming to it that's embracing it. And it's so funny that whether it's these new films or even this new TV series, they're all going back to the mothership, to the you know the template that was set by the original Star Trek. Whether they're doing it well or clumsily, that's a whole other discussion. But the fact is that that is where they're doing. I mean, now they just recast Leonard again uh, for the new show. You know, so it's it all comes back to what you guys did, you know, fifty some years ago, um, which is remarkable. Well, and also. Star Trek, the motion picture, the end of the movie, the message of the film and what Spock learns, of course, is that it's the human, it's that human element that's necessary for V'ger to grow. I mean, V'ger is this mechanized, even though it's this gigantic godlike machine that can do all of these things, it still needs the human element. It needs to combine V'ger with is the, this giant special effect that's that right. needs a story to make it live. It needs live. a soul. Right? It needs a soul. And, and I think that that... That message, I mean, Star Trek The Motion Picture is still my favorite. I think Star Trek II is the best, but Star Trek The Motion Picture is my favorite movie because when I saw it, it really, to me, was about the awe and wonder of the universe. And and it showed the Star Trek universe the way we'd never seen it before, but at its core, it was still about the friendship between these characters. Yeah, Okay. Uh, no, I think I think it's 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 the, the least successful of the films. Although Star Trek V is a close uh, companion, uh, and for the same reasons, Star Trek V didn't have an ending either. 
we started that movie, and we uh, we discovered we didn't have the the budget to do the mm-hmm. the kind of uh, finale that right. the picture required, and we and sort of just it just sort of exhausted itself before we got to the end. That there wasn't that wonderful sense of cl- climax, and I mean this in the most. Um, <laughs> Non-sexual way. <laughs> before I before I let you off the hook, I got to ask you one question. You know, we had a, on the social media last week. We did a uh, uh, an episode. We aired an episode where uh, we talked about the influence of Have Gun Will Travel on on Star Trek. He said, "Are you ever going to cover the Lieutenant?" And I, I said, "No, I don't think so." But we have you here. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you to just briefly talk about working on the Lieutenant. And what's so interesting is, I believe in the episode you were in, you played a guy whose father was a communist in the military. Um, and and oh, yeah. that had repercussions for you. Mother. Now, yeah. your mother. And then in, in real life, was it your father uh, was a member of the Communist Party. I, I wonder, I, I mean, was it this weird synchronicity or, um, uh, you know, how did how this come out? Do you remember anything about it? I mean, it's so long ago, but I'm just curious because obviously without the lieutenant, there is no Star Trek, and so many of the people that Gene met on that show ended up getting eventually cast. Yeah. And, yeah, it wasn't Gene who brought me in for Star Trek, though. It was Joe D'Augusta. Right. The right. Cast, he was also the casting director. Yeah. yeah. And he's, uh, we're still friends. I just had a party at my house. Uh, he's a year older than I am, and he comes to all my parties. I mean, I'm eternally grateful for his uh, respect of my talent and his friendship and the fact that he Kept bringing me in. Uh, my my only, I mean, it, it was a leading guest role, which was nice. Uh, my, my 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 concerns were um, that initially, uh, I can't think of the director's name. Um, I can't think of his name, but but he and Gary Lockwood took it upon themselves. To give me line readings. Oh God! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, and I I told the director Vince McAvity. Mm. Oh, okay. I told him I, I said, Mr. McAvity, uh, I'm not going to be able to function if I'm if I'm waiting for you to stop the shot and tell me something. You've got to let me do, do the scene. And he said, Okay, okay. And he did. After that, never stopped me. Uh, Gary would would also g- give me line readings. And I and I said to him, I don't know if I called him. I don't think I called him Mr. Lockwood, but I said, Gary, uh, you know, the, the first the first law of acting is you don't give another actor line readings. You don't tell him how to act. So I would really appreciate it if you if you wouldn't do that. And he didn't. After that, we didn't. And then we we got along fine. And then I, I actually, you know, during the course of several conventions, we. we you know, we became kind of friendly, kind of friendly. So that that was good. But um, no, you know, an actor is an actor is an actor. And yeah, there are occasions and incidents in one's life that you draw upon to help create the character you're playing. But if you were if you were doing a story uh, about somebody who felt uh, persecuted and uh, intimidated and um, paranoid about the world he deals with, the world he deals in, uh, then I might have taken some, uh, I might have drawn to, to some degree from my father's uh, relationship with the Communist Party. Because it was, it was a very, very uh, tumultuous time. And you had uh, first the, the Hollywood 10, and, the, and, and then, in fact, I wrote a, a piece for a new book 
It's called. Um, um, it's the same title as Ted Sturgeon's Star Trek episode. Um, a mock, a mock time. time. What? A mock time. No, maybe maybe not the same title. Uh, uh, Stranger in a Strange Land. Uh, yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's the same title, but it's an anthology of um, uh, poems, short stories, essays uh, that's coming out uh, later this month. And I wrote a piece about what it was like being the son. And it's called Red Diaper Baby, which is which, which is what they were called. Uh, the son of, of someone who had was a very vociferous uh, member of the Communist Party. We didn't have bombs in the sock drawer, you know, or anything like that. And he wasn't trading secrets in the State Department. But he pontificated at length uh, about the joys uh, of communism. Um, in any case, if we had done that kind of a story where I, where I was feeling a little paranoid all the time, then that would have been helpful. But, you know, I, I, I didn't have to extrapolate from my, my history as the son of a, of a communist to be able to play that part as effectively or ineffectively as I did. How it's did it, your dad feel about you getting cast as a Russian? Gone. Oh, oh he's, he's gone. gone. Yeah, he didn't see me do Chekhov, which was... Great sadness for me. Your dad was from Russia originally. From yeah, he was from Russia. Yeah, he died at age of sixty-one. Oh, so yeah, I was still in school when he died. I, I have to. I have to say, you know, we talked about you know these times that we live in, but if you look at the era of the blacklist, you know, so few people were, would stand up, and even what they did when Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, as soon as there was real peril to them in their careers and stuff, they sort of backed off, you know, right. and, and, and uh, you know, it wasn't until Edward R. Morrow and, 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 and Joseph Welsh and, 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 and Joseph Welsh that they, they, the tide really changed. I think if there's anything to look at right now, it's how many people are, are standing up and resisting and, and um, who, who, who are not being silent against what's going on. And that's encouraging. Well, y- yeah, it's encouraging. But how is it that he's still in office? How is it that this, this, this base that he has uh, is, is, is yeah. just ignores all the evidence to the contrary? How... You know that there are that many people, even if it's thirty nine percent, that many people in our country cannot see what's what's happening. They have they have this sense of loyal. Well, I I do know what I know. I do know where they're coming from. I've read a couple of books. We don't have time for it today, but I but I'll tell you uh, a couple of books that everybody should read, uh, and it'll give you an understanding of how one is called White Trash. And it's four centuries of uh, the class system in America. And another one is called um, um, Hillbilly Allergy, about a a young man growing up in uh, Appalachia and and with the the whole sense of the clanship, not the Ku Klux Klan, but the clan, the Scottish and the Irish clans, and how they become your... Your your priority and 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 they are where your loyalty lies. And if somebody comes along that seems anti-establishment or not part of the government, then they embrace that that figure for what they believe he stands for. And that's what they, a lot of people are doing with Trump. Well, it's like that aggrieved uh, Trump supporter that they quoted the other day in the press who said he he's hurting the wrong people. 
you know, as though they're the right people to hurt. You know, he's like, they're hurting the people, you know, his tariffs and things are hurting the, the people that voted for him. But we, we, we want him to hurt you guys on the West Coast, yeah. the, you guys yeah. in New York. I mean, it's so loathsome. But like you said, that's a whole nother conversation. So what I want to remind people is Walter's uh, revised autobiography updated to include um, the last 21 20, years. 21 years. Uh, you know, taking you from when you finished that. What 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 was what, what era was? What had you just done when you wrote? The I, I was I was in the fourth year of uh, Babylon Five, so I had one more year to to work on that, that wasn't covered. So you'll get your description about playing Alfred Bester in <laughs> Babylon Five in the book, or, or when the book comes out, you want to come back and tub thump it. We will be more than happy to have you back if you are so inclined. Um, and, and and let me just in, in, interject. It's uh, from Jacob Brown Press. Oh, okay, James. Right, those are the the guys. Uh, Mark Cushman yes. uh, did Mark Cushman's book. Yeah. Uh, These are the voyages, and I did a wonderful uh, series of books um, on uh, Lost in Space. And then Mark uh, just had uh, released the new books on the post uh, Star Trek career of Gene Roddenberry, and I'm in the midst of uh, reading the first of those volumes, and and it. it Functions as a wonderful appendix to his wonderful, wonderful uh, three book series Absolutely. on the making of Star Trek. I, I, I think they were, if, if you have a vested interest in Star Trek, you, you should read These Are the Voyages. All it's three terrific. Lines. All three yeah. books are, yeah. are, are wonderful. He did a, a, a marvelous, marvelous job. And of but, course, look everywhere for Chekhov's Enterprise, the definitive. Is it, is it somewhere you can find it? Is it digi- available digitally on Kindle? Or, I mean, I have It's the all over copy. eBay. Is it? Yeah. Okay. But about I want that new version. You said the, it's a Florida publishing concern. Well, but this is from what, uh, twenty years ago, right? When even when it was reissued, this is the same book. It's just that you different know, different published di- by them, yeah, and different format. Yeah. The Intergalactic yeah. Trading Company was. It's probably the same group of people. Yeah. I want that version. I well, don't have that. Well, you know, we, we can talk about your address. I may have. I may have one or two around. There. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> well, you'll have to give it to me in person when you come back. Okay, you can do that. <laughs> a little, uh, little Cyrano Jones bartering going on here. Um, well, look, it, it's really been an absolute pleasure. We're so happy to have you on the show, and and just such. Again, I, I can't say enough good things about the book. It just shows what you know what a great writer you are, and people think of you as a as an actor first and foremost, which of course you are. But your your, your writing is is terrific, and uh, really enjoyed it as, as both as a, a journalist and you know as a writer producer for TV. I just, and a fan, and a fan first and foremost. So there you go. So I want to thank Walter. I want to thank Robert. Of course, uh, Darren for being here. Um, there's new episodes of Inglorious Trexpert every uh, Sunday night wherever you listen to uh, podcasts uh, make sure to uh, vote, uh, rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts that always helps bring new listeners to the show and our sister show uh, Disco Nights every Thursday with host Chase Masterson where they talk about Star Trek Discovery they will not be talking about any of the things we talked about today I'm sure <laughs> um, and um, I want a special thanks to Bill Ritter our sound a wonderful sound engineer, and then I see back in the Cynthia hiding in the back there. Thank you, Cynthia. So everyone here at the Electric Surge Network, Dean Devlin, uh, thank you, and we'll uh, see you next week for an all new episode of Inglorious Trexperts. Engage.
This podcast is a production of the Electric Surge Network.